This is um, a study retreat. And what that means is that it's a retreat, as one would normally um, experience here. In other words, we are literally retreating from whatever we've been doing up to this point into an atmosphere of, of silence and of calm and attention and reflection. And we try to maintain this environment both in the way the retreat is structured in terms of our daily routines and schedule, by harmonizing periods of walking and sitting and working and resting, so that we find um, in the course of the days a supportive uh, context within which to be more, more clear perhaps, more still with what is going on for us at this moment and by this moment the one that will keep being this moment until we leave and the practices we'll be doing will be um, fairly basic uh, awareness practices with which most of you are are probably familiar uh, Martin will also be giving other hints and uh, instructions through the week and at the same time even though we're using the word study that does not mean that for a certain period of the day in this case the seminar in the morning we somehow stop doing all this meditation retreat stuff and get terribly interested in all sorts of exotic ideas I think the very no the very fact that we have to differentiate between study on the one hand and what we might call practice on the other is, I think, also somewhat of a, of a problem, if not a, a dichotomy, and perhaps a false one. In many respects, I think we have to question what we mean by uh, a practice of the Dharma, of Buddhism, of, the med of meditation, of one's own particular path, and not get too um, narrow in our definition of what it means to practice. And if one lined up a bunch of Buddhists against a wall and said, what's your practice? I suspect that the knee-jerk answer would be, well, I practice Zen, or I practice... Uh, vipassana, or whatever it might be. In other words, practice, the word practice, comes to be privileged as some kind of special spiritual exercise we do. We might, of course, consider, in a looser sense, the whole of our life is a kind of practice, but the real thing is when we're crunched up cross-legged on a cushion somewhere, doing something special. And so when we talk of study and meditation, we are liable to slip into that mode of thinking. 
the, my practice, in other words, this spiritual exercise I do, that's what's the real thing. And the study is a kind of icing on the cake, some kind of optional extra that we're going to do for this retreat. But I'd like to be able to go completely beyond that kind of thinking and to consider how the Buddha himself presented the path in which he didn't divide it along these lines at all. The Eightfold Path, which is something we'll be coming back to again and again, includes the way we see things, ditti, our vision. It includes then how we uh, think, how we reflect, sankapa, how we speak, how we communicate, how we act, how we work, how we commit ourselves, how we make effort, how we apply ourselves. And also, of course, mindfulness and concentration. Now that is, as it were, a kind of sketch of what the Buddha called one's bhavana, one's practice, that which one seeks to cultivate and to bring into being in the course of, of, um, of integrating and living and following a path. So it's not just about being more mindful or focused or concentrated, but it's about the context within which mindfulness, for example, makes sense. You know, why are we mindful? Why do we want to meditate? What are our motives? What are our reasons? What has prompted us in our lives to do this kind of thing? And so I feel very strongly that the Buddha's vision of practice was indeed something that is present in all aspects of one's life. And that all of those aspects, all of those facets together, when balanced and harmonized, that constitutes the practice. Now, of course, in our society, it's certainly true that we're brought up with very little encouragement or even opportunity to, to cultivate qualities like mindfulness and attention and concentration. They're not taught at school. They may increasingly be found in, in spiritual groups, religious groups. But nonetheless, it's a pretty marginal kind of thing. I mean, hopefully through the last 20 or 30 years of setting up places like Guy House and so on, meditation has become more accepted, more mainstreamed, as it were, but it's still not really part of our culture, of our upbringing. So it is important, therefore, to, uh, to spend periods uh, uh, where we do focus specifically on those aspects of the practice. And that, I think, is why we're drawn to meditation, because it often brings into our lives uh, something that, until that point, we'd somehow not really been able to find or connect with. So, when I give these uh, talks in the morning, and there'll be also a period in the afternoon for uh, questions and answers and discussion, I'll constantly be reminding myself and yourselves that what we're doing is not something abstract. It's not something apart from 
what's informing our experience here and now. And what I hope that we discover through this week together um, is a, a way in which we can live more lightly and more easily with these different aspects of our practice so that we perhaps become less attached to certain exercises as being the core of one's practice and instead beginning to realize how we think, the ideas that we entertain, the way we communicate with one another, the way we live, the way we act, the way we work. All of this is practice. It's all bhavana. It's all to be, to be brought into being, which is what the word literally means, cultivated. Now, what I want to do this week um, is to look at some of the, uh, the distinctive features that make Buddhism into what it is, as something distinctive from uh, mainstream Indian religion, particularly that that existed at the Buddha's time. And to explore what it is that marks the Buddha off as somehow um, a visionary, a genius, um, a saint perhaps, a person who had integrated a certain set of, of moral values, of, of intellectual insights, uh, of uh, spiritual experiences, in such a way that that has stood out and been recognized as, as Buddhist for the last two and a half thousand years. I'm going to suggest, and we'll come back to this point, that there are four things that are distinctive in what Siddhartha Gautama, the historical Buddha, uh, taught um, when he lived all that time ago in India. Things that he did not derive from the culture of his time. I mean, many aspects of what the Buddha taught were in some ways uh, simply an affirmation or a, a reaffirmation of classical Indian ideas, the ideas of, of rebirth, of karma, of liberation, and so forth and so on. But there were other elements of his teaching uh, that were somehow new. And just briefly, I'll mention what I feel these to be. Uh, the first is the idea of dependent origination, uh, conditionality, contingency, interconnectedness, all of which are ways of translating this word paticca samupada. In other words, the primary emphasis on uh, the, re the relational nature of the phenomenal world. In other words, not appealing to some transcendent absolute reality or some um, transcendent kind of spirit or mind, but rather starting and basing his whole approach to life on an understanding of connectedness, of relationship, of causality, of synchronicity perhaps. The second point that is distinctive is his emphasis on the practice of the meditation of mindfulness. In other words, paying attention to what is taking place 
here and now, both around us, but also, of course, in the upsurge of thoughts and emotions and feelings that are going on within us. Thirdly, the Buddha's emphasis on the idea of a path, an eightfold path that I've already mentioned, but seeing that within the framework of the Four Noble Truths. We're going to, we'll come back to all of this if you're not familiar with those ideas. And fourthly, uh, the Buddha's emphasis on, on self-reliance, on becoming one's own, um, uh, on becoming an autonomous person, um, of being one's own authority in what matters most for one. So in other words, these four points, conditionality, one, mindfulness, two, and the eightfold path, three, and self-reliance, four. But I want to frame all of that within an understanding of who this person was. Who was this man uh, who walked around North India two and a half thousand years ago? And why were such ideas um, so important to him? What was the situation he found himself in? Who was he speaking to? What was he reacting against? What was he responding to? What, how was society changing at that time? What were the political pressures on his life? You see, I don't think we can separate what the Buddha gave um, in his teaching from how he actually lived his life. So what I'll be doing this week will be um, bringing in elements of biography of Siddhartha Gautama, not the whole story, but bits of it, and seeing how they are somehow integral to what he taught and then in the afternoon we'll have time uh, for discussion. I'll also be citing any number of texts, mainly from the Pali Canon. And then in the evening, Martin will be giving a more traditional Dharma talk, which will focus more on, on our practice. Perhaps it'll be, in, as she would say, more practical. And then we'll also have periods where you'll be able to sign up for interviews with Martine. Um, and hopefully, over once we somehow get settled in this place, um, we'll find a kind of rhythm uh, in which we're both able to find stillness and quiet, but also a certain energy of attention, of inquiry, uh, of deepening our interests... If you want to take notes while either of us talk, that's absolutely fine. But all of the talks will be recorded and will be available after the retreat. Um, if you have um, reading materials that you've brought, although strictly speaking, you're not supposed to look at them, um, because this is a study retreat, that's okay. But if Try to focus on one or the most two texts. Try to read more slowly. Um, notice when reading becomes 
a kind a way to divert yourself. Oh, I don't want to meditate this period. I think I'll go and read my book. And but to what extent? Where's that coming from? So to try to learn to read and to reflect more quietly, more contemplatively, noticing how the mind is so prone to finding some excuse or other to somehow not be present to what's actually unfolding in the moment. So that's all I really need to say. And I'll pass this microphone to Martin. Right, and I'm very happy to be with you here also tonight and for the week together. Just one slight thing about uh, reading. So you can read, uh, of course, uh, I presume it's uh, Dharma material and not detective novel. Uh, And secondly, please to just read, I would say, during the free time in your room, or of course if it's sunny outside, But please do not bring a book when you are eating. One activity at a time. So what I'd like to to talk about tonight is in a way to kind of... uh, talking about the start of the retreat, the environment in which we find ourselves. Some of you have been here before, some of you have never been here before, and just a few of you have never been on a retreat. So some of you might not be used to the silence. Some of you might think, ooh, this is a little strange. But I hope that we can cultivate an atmosphere, an environment where we can, in a way, be supportive of each other, whatever are our conditions. Some people might feel very healthy. Some people might feel a little weak. I mean, we don't program ourselves. Sometimes you might arrive with a cold or whatever it is. So trying to really, in a way, find a way to be together when we kind of uh, have space, giving away space and time for each other. And so to really cultivate a very supportive and safe atmosphere. And so very much because at the basis of everything we do here, there is compassion and there is tolerance. And so I would say there is compassion for ourselves and compassion for others. Tolerance for ourselves, tolerance for others. And really, in a way, to see this also at the back of our mind. That this is very much the practice of living together, of sharing a space together. That actually, we can do this retreat because all of us have come. So each person is helping the other to be there. And so when... Hopefully it won't happen when somebody snores in your bedroom or when somebody breathes heavily next to you to, in a way, remember that, that each of us is helping each other, but also that we have different conditions. So if the person is snoring, there is a thing for the ears. The manager has lots of uh, hearing plugs. And with the heavy breathing, the person has to breathe. We, you know, they can't stop breathing. So we're trying to, and hopefully the heavy breather can breathe a little less loudly so everybody kind of finding 
you know. And also, generally, the first day, the first two days, we're a little tired, we arrive, you have to find. And, you know, generally, I remember once we started and there was somebody, their stomach was so loud, you know, and we all wondered what was happening. But after two days, it was finished. So again, to kind of also, things change, to be careful, not to, <gasps> it's going to be like this the whole time. That's one thing you will be able to see during this retreat. Change, things change. Hopefully the weather will change. <laughs> but our thought, feeling, sensation change. And so very much to remember that a retreat, I mean, we come on a retreat, not because we have nothing else to do, but because in a way we want to cultivate certain things for ourselves together with other people. And I think one of the things which, you know, it's easier to cultivate here because we are not so stressed, we have not so many things to do, and is harmlessness. How could we cultivate harmlessness to ourselves and to others? So trying to be kinder to ourselves. In, especially in thought, and to be careful of this, I must do this, it has to be like this. <gasps> Why am I still thinking about that? I would say you're still thinking about that because something happened. It's in your mind. But we can try to be differently, either with what is easy or with what is difficult. So trying to be harmless to ourselves, to others. Also to be generous to ourselves and others, to give ourselves space and time. We're trying, really, we're trying to cultivate what I would call creative engagement. We're not trying to create certain specific state or being in a specific way. We're just trying to cultivate certain intentions and certain way of being which generally makes it easier to be within our life. Peace, quietness, love, clarity. But it doesn't mean that we can be clear 24 hours a day. Or can we be loving 24 hours a day? But we can have that intention. We can try to cultivate that. And also to respect ourselves, to respect others, to respect the space we are in. It really in a way, use this opportunity because in a way, this place is set up so that it's easier for people to cultivate meditation, to reflect, to be, in a way, in a quiet, supportive environment. Part of the retreat will be the silence. And I know some of you might be used to the silence and might love the silence. And some of you might have never done a retreat in silence and you might think, this is strange, you know? Especially when you eat together in silence. If you're not used to it, it feels so strange. It's totally normal to feel it strange. You know, but generally you get used to it. If you have difficulty with it, just come and talk to me or leave me a note. Last time, I, once I did a retreat and there was this young man who really had great difficulty with the silence. So we, once or twice, I kind of... Uh, so even we even ate together, so it would feel not so strange. <laughs> but just to see that, you know, m most people will be comfortable after a day or two with it. But if you really have a difficulty, just I'm very happy to talk to you. Don't worry about that. I have that. 
And to see the, the silence is actually a training. It's just because, you know, generally there is so much noise in our life. And then sometimes we can just be so quiet to just be silent, but it doesn't mean that we don't communicate, but we communicate in a different way as we share this space together. So to see the silence first is to help us with the meditation. If we don't talk to each other and think about the great thing I could say or kind of argue or whatever or prepare conversation because you'll do that anyway for the future but at least this kind of, you know, makes this a little less. So just to help you in your meditation. Generally it will help to be more calm, to be more quiet. Another thing for me with the silence is that it helps you. I think it's very important to be friend with yourself. It's okay to be by yourself. It's okay to affirm your own existence. You don't need somebody else to say, it's okay for you to be there. Of course it's good if somebody says that. But I think it's good to learn to be by oneself in a stable and open way. And the third one is also in terms of the meditation, that when we're in silence, outer silence, we realize that actually we're talking to ourselves most of the time. And also we can start to see that when we talk to ourselves, we actually, most of our inner language is about me. What I want, what I would like, what I hope. And to see that, not to judge it, but to see, ooh, can I kind of diminish this kind of, you know, thinking about me and just making it a little kind of thinking about me, thinking about other, or just being calm so that we don't have to think so much, we don't have to rehearse so much. So it's just to help us also to do that, so that in a way we have more freedom. We learn to see, do I really need to say that? And how could I have said it differently? What is the best way to say something? I think actually being in silence can help us there, to learn to speak in a kind way, in a creative way. So at that level, the silence doesn't mean that we have to be dour, severe looking. And personally, I think it's good if we have eye contact and if we smile at each other, I will be smiling at you. If you don't want to smile, this is fine. Mm -hmm. Also to be aware that some people are in long-term retreat. About 15, 16 people are in long-term retreat on the other side of the building. And those people very likely will not make eye contact with you and very likely will not smile. They have nothing against you. But it's just that's the way they want to practice. Because in some uh, Buddhist tradition, that's what you do. You're supposed to look at your feet the whole time. Personally, I'm not totally for it. I think it's better to look ahead and see what's going on. But each to its own. So if some people here, for whatever reason, want to keep that style, then also... I. I would hope we can respect that. But I would hope there is enough people smiling so people feel comfortable. <laughs> so just to, again, have a kind atmosphere. That's what I would like us to develop in that silence. So also, to, we are uh, two teachers here. And Stephen will give a talk in the morning. I will give some talk in the evening. And to see that what we say is suggestion. You know, if you sometimes you might not agree whatsoever with what Stephen says, this is not 
the golden rule. It's not you don't have to learn all this by heart and then become bachelorite. This is not the idea. This is suggestion. This is idea that we have found works and we find are interesting. And then it's for you to listen and to see, does it make sense? Can I apply it? Is it useful or not? So very much to, to know that this is kind of an, an exchange, that we're kind of offering something. But you kind of, you know, you, you don't have to take it for this is the only way. There are many different ways. This is just one way to look at things. Also, there'll be interviews, and I'll put a list, and if you can, sign up. And tomorrow, there is three people I will sign up, because from there, uh, interview list, it looks like they have never done a retreat. So generally, I like to meet these people straight away. And then the other people you sign as you want. But again, I would recommend for people who have not done much meditation or much retreat to sign earlier than later. So, and I'll put this up tomorrow morning. At the same time, Stephen and I will be here the whole time. We are available for you. If you need anything, you can leave us a note. You can come to us. We are really here for you. And so what we want to try to develop very much is a non-judgmental awareness, this mindfulness, this awareness Stephen has talked about. And so to be very careful with what I would call kind of a competitive mind, of the measuring mind. Sometimes we are even in competition with ourselves. I must do this. I must do that. We're just trying something. We're just exploring. I see this as a training, an exploration. You're not going to get a gold star at the end because you sat cross-legged in a certain way or whatever. It's just in order to help ourselves. And so really to be careful that sometimes it's going to be easy and sometimes it's going to be a little difficult. And so to see that when it's easy, I cannot guarantee it will last. But when it's difficult, I can guarantee it will not last. <laughs> you know, it comes and it goes. You might feel really good in the morning and you might feel so sleepy after lunch. And then end of the afternoon, mm, you might have a little pain in the leg. So again, this comes and goes. So just, I think, to really work on acceptance, on being with what happens to be, and trying to creatively engage with it. I'll talk a lot about that during the week. And so what I will do is that I will, uh, every morning at 9.30, I will give a very brief theme for the day in terms of the meditation. The breath, the sound, the body, feelings, etc. And so if you feel comfortable with it, try it out. If you like it, continue with it for the day. If there is something else you prefer to do, like meta meditation, which I will just introduce at the end, loving kindness meditation. If you like to do that, do it at the beginning. Don't wait for me to bring it later. So I will suggest things. If you're happy with them, do them. If you rather do something else, do that. What is important is that it helps you to be stable and open and calm and clear. This is really what is important. And so, again, this theme, you have to see what is it that helps you or not. If, you have, if for example, you are asthmatic, I would not recommend the breath. If you have tin, tintinitis, I would not recommend listening. So, again, 
is, you know, I offer this thing and then it's for you to see. Is it helpful or not? No method is sacred. And personally, I think no method works for everybody. So we'll start with the breath, but we'll move. Each day we'll bring something else. So, of course, we'll do sitting and walking. Sitting, we'll be sitting in this room. Most of the time it will be 45 minutes. If it's really too painful, there are chairs, and then bring chairs, you sometimes can alternate, or things like that. So when you sit in meditation, you try to have, that it be on the chair, that it be on the floor, you try to have a stable posture. You try to find a posture where you are relatively comfortable. So you sit, Stephen, can, can you take the blanket? And I'm sorry, I have a bad sciatica, I can't uh, demonstrate anymore. So you can sit, uh, that's a Burmese posture, Otherwise, you can do the half lotus, something like this. If you can do the full lotus, you can, but this is generally very painful and few people do it. And then you can also sit on a bench. You can kneel on a cushion. So it's for you to see what is it that helps me to be relatively comfortable. If you sit on a chair, what is important is that you keep the back straight. And also, it's not a fixed posture. We're not sitting like this, we try to find a posture which is steady and which we relatively relaxed. So the back is relatively straight, especially at the beginning, because we sometimes have a tendency to slouch. So we try, it doesn't mean that we are immobile. When you sit, if you feel like that, oops, you kind of, you know, stretch again. If you find your shoulder coming in like this, then you open them. So you can Within the sitting, you know, move a little. You can move the leg a little if you want, but I would not move it too much. You know, I would move three times. If you move ten times, it's going to feel like a year. So if it's too painful sitting on the ground, sit on a chair or or try the bench. Try to play a little. The first two days, try to see what is the posture that seems to work best for you. And then what we do is we, for example, take the breath as an object in our experience and then we focus on it. But we're not trying to to hold on to the breath. We're just trying to rest our attention on the breath. We wait for the breath to happen and we follow it. This is our anchor in the experience. So we stay with the breath, we feel the breath, we know the breath as it happens. So we don't imagine it, we don't control it, this is not a yoga exercise, we just let it happen. And then, of course, we go away. We think of something else, we hear a sound, we think of this, we think of that. And then we remember, ah, the breath. And so we come back to the breath, we come back to the moment. So we know the breath is our anchor into the moment. We kind of come back to it. So the meditation is not to stay with the breath all the time. This we cannot do because our brain, our feeling, our sensation, they appear and then we go here and there. But we try to come back as soon as we can to the breath because when we come back to the breath, we come back to the whole. We come back to the whole awareness. And this is what is interesting with the meditation. It's not that the breath is special, but that the breath anchors us 
into this moment. So we come back to the breath, we come back to everything. And so we can go far away. And then we remember, ah, I am here to sit. Come back to the breath. And I come back to the posture and to everybody around me, to the whole moment. So what we do in a way is we play with what I would call the front focus and the wide open awareness. So the front focus is a breath, for example, and then you have the wide open awareness in terms that the breath is in the front, but you still hear the sound, you feel the sensation, you have a thought feeling, etc. But you try to let them pass through you and not to stick. I'll talk more about that. So we just try to let them arise and pass away while we try to come back again and again to the breath. So that's what we're trying to do in meditation, trying to come back to the breath. And through that, and so we're not trying to stop thought because this is an impossible endeavor. We're not trying to stop thought because we think, why do we think? Not because we are bad meditator, but we think because we have a brain. As long as you're alive, your brain will be working. So it's good that you have thoughts. But we're trying to bring space into the thought so that they arise and they pass away. We can take them up if we want, let them go if we don't need to. So just to kind of bring a little space within that. So the thought arise, the feeling arise, sensation arise. We'll see it and we back to the breath. The breath as an anchor. And then this helps us to develop stability and openness, calmness and clarity, which then allow, help us to be able to more let out, in a way, to, to manifest our wisdom and compassion. So in a way, the meditation is a little to dissolve the obstacle to our wisdom, to our compassion. So that's what, in a way, we're working on. It doesn't mean that we will be wise and compassionate every single minute. But more likely it will happen over time. And so again, to be with a changing nature. But I'll talk more about this later. So that's what I wanted to say. Is there any question, anything that is not clear?